This is KVRX 91.7 Austin, and you are listening to Dialectica, an examination of the civic, political, and economic issues that matter to us all on global, national, and local levels. Dialectica is brought to you by students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs and is produced in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. We hope you enjoy the show. If nothing is done, this recession could linger for years. The unemployment rate could reach double digits. Our economy could fall $1 trillion short of its full capacity, which translates into more than $12,000 in lost income for a family of four. We could lose a generation of potential and promise as more young Americans are forced to forego dreams of college or the chance to train for the jobs of the future. And our nation could lose the competitive edge that has served as a foundation for our strength and our standing in the world. In short, a bad situation could become dramatically worse. So these are the stakes. Federal action, an economic stimulus package and an ongoing bank bailout are currently being fiercely debated by politicians on the left and the right. And after weeks of growing dissatisfaction on the part of Republican lawmakers in response to a stimulus bill they say is larded down with pork and pet projects, the debate has gotten ugly, almost to a point of distraction. Here's Senator Lindsey Graham last week. The country is going to get worse. If this is the new way of doing business, if this is the change we all can believe in, America's best days are behind her. And this is President Obama the following day. So, well, then, I, then you get the argument, well, this is not a stimulus bill, this is a spending bill. What do you think a stimulus is? That's the whole point. Don't come to the table with the same tired arguments and worn ideas that helped to create this crisis. So what is happening here exactly? Is this debate over economic stimulus just a game of political chicken, or is there something deeper at stake? In my studies at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, I found that the two sides of this economic debate do in fact have a lot at stake beyond just the economic or political outcome. Now, don't get me wrong, the economic stakes are vital, and the political stakes can't be ignored if you're trying to understand what's happening in Washington these days. But underneath all that, there's also a war of ideas going on. And today, for the people who have a hard time following this debate, I'll try to explain why and who may be winning. Everyone pretty much agrees on the reasons we're in this mess. Housing bubble plus credit crunch equals recession. But the two major political parties cannot seem to agree on how to get us out. The debate over the two big pieces of government intervention, the economic stimulus package and the financial system bailout, are being sharply contested. The differences rest in part on the different schools of economic thought influencing the political debate. So... I'd like to explain, in a nutshell, what these schools are and why they matter. First, there's one thing to realize about economics. 
is that despite all the formulas involved, it's not a science, or at least not a pure science. You can't conduct any kind of controlled experiments, and so instead you have to combine abstract logical reasoning with historical examples in order to prove your points. So when you look at the history of economic thought, the big schools always emerge the same way when some major crisis comes along, that the old way of thinking didn't predict and can't explain, but matches pretty well with what the new guy's economic model is predicting. So in the period leading to the Great Depression, the two main economic theories were classical economics and Marxism. Now, everyone knows what happens to the Marxists, so I'll leave them out of the discussion, but the idea behind classical economics was basically that the markets are entirely self-managing, that even though you might have a bull or bear market from time to time, you have what are called business cycles, the laws of supply and demand always kick in eventually, and the market self-adjusts, as if corrected by an invisible hand. And over the long run, the economy grows at its maximum without any government intervention. Now, one branch of classical tradition that is still alive is called the Austrian School of Economics, named after a group of Austrians from the late 19th century. Ron Paul, the libertarian, is a notable advocate of the Austrian school, and so is venture capitalist Peter Schiff. Here he is talking about the bailout on Bloomberg. Well, you know, it's going to get worse because the government is interfering with the free market cure, and instead they're simply worsening the disease. Remember, what's happening in our economy right now is the consequence of the problem. The problem was we recklessly borrowed and spent too much money. The Fed kept interest rates too low. Wall Street took that money and speculated with it. Americans took that money and bought houses and cars and appliances and all sorts of things. We're now broke because we borrowed and spent too much money. We need to have a serious recession where we go back to saving and producing and, and not borrowing and consuming. Unfortunately, the government is doing the wrong thing. They're trying to reinflate the bubble. They are helping to dig us into a deeper ditch and therefore it's going to be much more difficult to ever get back to a viable economy again. This argument is essentially identical to the arguments made about government spending from the classical point of view during the Great Depression. Up until that point, these arguments had a lot of merit. They did, after all, explain how normal economic growth works and how business cycles work. But when it came to the Great Depression, when the leaders of the global economies decided to encourage the cutback in individual consumption and encourage individual savings rather than intervening to reverse it, the invisible hand did not come to the economy's rescue. Instead, the economy kept getting steadily worse for years. So, enter John Maynard Keynes. Keynes published The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money in 1936, which, along with Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, are probably the two most influential economic books ever written. Now, Keynes argued a million things in the general theory, but his argument about the Great Depression can be summed up fairly simply. As far as reasons for the Great Depression, Keynes offered that certain types of market failures, investment bubbles, price stickiness, wage stickiness, other ways in which the real world of the marketplace doesn't resemble the neat supply and demand curves of classic theory, 
These market failures can combine perniciously to make the entire economy totally dysfunctional under certain circumstances. The global economy, Keynes said in 1936, was in a liquidity trap from which it would not recover without outside assistance. And where would that assistance come from? The government. If you look at the whole economy, you can take America's gross domestic product, or GDP, and split it up into basically three types of spending, consumption, investment, and government spending. In the Depression, consumption and investment collapsed, and the economy was in a liquidity trap, so those numbers weren't going back up on their own. Therefore, government spending was needed to start a recovery. Now, Keynesians can also explain what happened next. You see, Keynes published the general theory in 1936 after both the first and second New Deals had been passed. Those programs weren't based on Keynesian theory exactly. They were devised as relief programs for the unemployed. They were justified mostly as a moral necessity and not as a stimulus per se. So when 1937 came along and when unemployment numbers had gone down significantly, FDR ignored Keynes' advice and cut back on spending in an attempt to balance the federal budget. Now, Keynes thought such a move was premature, and sure enough, by 1938, the economy found itself right back in Depression territory where it would stay until World War II. And only then, Keynesians say, did the government finally spend enough to lift the country out of the Depression. After the end of the war, Keynesianism became the leading economic theory in the U.S. However, something would soon come along that Keynesianism did not predict and could not easily explain, and that's stagflation, or the combination of high inflation and high unemployment we experienced in the late 60s and 70s. Through the Vietnam War and the Great Society programs, the government spent and spent and spent, but the problem kept getting worse. And here is where Milton Friedman and monetary policy step in. Friedman and his fellow monetarists had a strategy to beat stagflation based on two elegant observations. First, they noticed that between the inflation problem and the unemployment problem, the former was probably causing the latter. After all, rapid inflation makes it difficult for companies to invest in long-term strategies since any money you set aside now will be worth considerably less a couple of years down the road. Over time, inflation creates its own dysfunctional short-term expectations in the marketplace, making the market inefficient and prone to high unemployment. Thus, solutions targeted only at the unemployment problem were unlikely to work without first addressing inflation. Also, monetarists had a realization about the power of the Federal Reserve. Now, this involves an equation, so bear with me here. First, they noted that GDP could be calculated as all the quantity of goods sold in the U.S. over a year times 
the average price of those goods, or quantity times price. If you have, say, one trillion transactions, in other words, in a year, that average 10 bucks a piece, that's $10 trillion of GDP. Now, on the other hand, GDP could also be calculated as the number of dollars in circulation, or the money supply, multiplied by the number of times an average dollar changes hands in a year, or the money velocity. That's money supply times money velocity. So if you have one trillion dollars in circulation, and they change hands an average of 10 times over a year, that's a GDP of, again, $10 trillion. Now notice that GDP is equal to both price times quantity and money supply times money velocity. So therefore, price times quantity must equal money supply times money velocity. And since inflation is really just rising prices, if you want to put a lid on it, one of the ways you can do so is by shrinking the money supply. And that's something the government can very easily do through the Federal Reserve. But monetarism goes further than just explaining how to beat inflation. They also had their own explanation for the Great Depression, beyond the simple market failures that Keynes describes. In the short film, The Purpose of the Federal Reserve, Milton Friedman gives this explanation. Why didn't the system prevent the Great Depression after 1929? Because from 1929 to 1930, after the stock market crash, the Federal Reserve System allowed the quantity of money to decline slowly, thereby throttling the monetary structure. By December 1930, the quantity of money had fallen by 3%, which may not seem much, but a growing economy needs additional money in order to prevent deflation and problems. Given this throttling of the monetary system, what happened after that was more or less inevitable. If the Bank of the United States had not happened to fail, some other bank would have been the victim. It would have failed and would have set off the runs. Once the runs started, the Federal Reserve could have prevented them from having the disastrous consequences they did by stepping in and providing the banking system in general through creating new money with the cash it needed to meet the demands of depositors. After all, once depositors start trying to take their money out of the banks, there is a strong tendency for the quantity of money to fall. Each dollar of cash which is withdrawn from a bank had been backing several dollars of deposits. If the Federal Reserve had stepped in, bought government securities on a large scale, provided the cash, the depositors would have found that they could get their money and they would have stopped asking for it. So as you can see, monetarist economics is very focused on the Federal Reserve's powers to control the money supply as the key to managing the economy. Now, the Fed can control the money supply directly, either by buying or selling bonds and other securities to and from banks, or they can control it indirectly by changing the Fed's funds rate, or what most people would just call the interest rate. By focusing on controlling the money supply, this theory goes, you'll never see a depression in the first place, and no other government intervention into the marketplace should ever be necessary. And sure enough, once a monetarist took charge of the Fed in 1983 and tamed the inflation beast, 
we've had a 25-year run of pretty much unprecedented financial stability, which some have called the Great Moderation. But perhaps you can see the problem here. Because the Great Moderation is now clearly over. And we kept inflation low. We kept unemployment low. We've had monetarists in charge of the Fed since 1983 and still do. Now, granted, interest rates probably were kept too low in the mid-2000s, but just for a couple of years at the most. And we did have a minor recession in the early 2000s, after all, and the low rate of job recovery after that recession did seem like a pretty good reason to keep rates low for a while after it was over. And when the current crisis hit, Ben Bernanke followed Milton Friedman's diagnosis to a T, shoveling money at the banks and lowering the interest rates vigorously. Yet, here we are. The interest rate's at zero. It can't go any lower. And we've been shoveling money at the banks. Most everyone knows about the Troubled Assets Relief Program, or TARP. That's $350 billion given to the banks so far. But that's just the part of the bailout that needed approval by Congress. The Fed already has a broad lending power that doesn't require congressional approval, and Bernanke has used it to the tune of $1.2 trillion in bank debt on top of the $350 billion in TARP funds, and he's guaranteed trillions more in private bank debt on top of that. The shovel has been working overtime, in other words. Yet the current crisis is not responding any better to monetary treatment than the stagflation crisis did to government spending in the 1970s. That leads us to one final school of economic thought, the Neo-Keynesians. These are people who you should probably get accustomed to. People like Larry Summers and Christine Romer, who compose most of Obama's Council of Economic Advisors and will have a heavy influence on presidential policy going forward. The Neo-Keynesians are a diverse bunch. But generally speaking, they represent an unexpected marriage between the old Keynesian and monetarist schools of thought, while they admit that the monetarists were basically correct in their diagnosis of controlling the money supply for normal economic problems, neo-Keynesians still retain Keynes's concern about market failure, and they believe that a combination of market failures can still lead to liquidity traps that are hard for monetary policy to contain. Where monetary policy fails, the best solution, they say, is the old solution. Keynesian economic stimulus, government spending. For an illustration of this, listen to the following exchange between conservative commentator Pat Buchanan and the neo-Keynesian and Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman on the MSNBC show Morning Joe last week. All right, but Paul, let me look. Look, you know your economic history. And the tax cuts of the Harding-Coolidge administration and the tax cuts of Ronald Reagan ignited two of the biggest booms in history. I oh, mean, come on. Reagan's and, and decade it, was terrific. In the they, 1920s, it all the way went up to 28 until the Federal Reserve, as Milton Friedman pointed out, 
fouled it up, and that's why we got the Depression. Look, you know, we had a perfect test of your theory. Bill Clinton raised taxes in 1993, and everybody on the right said, disaster, disaster. And what we actually had was an incredible period of job creation and growth that followed, something that dwarfed whatever happened under Reagan. Uh, if, you, if there was an expansion in the 80s, yeah, it's because in 1982, when the economy was deeply depressed, the Federal Reserve said, okay, we've got to do something about this, and they cut interest rates from 13% to around 7%, and the economy took off. Right now, the interest rate is zero. The Fed can't rescue us this time, and that's why we can't do the things we did in the 80s. We have to have an approach that harks back to the things that worked very well in the first four years of the New Deal until Franklin Roosevelt was persuaded to go orthodox all over again. As you can hear, these two sides of the economic spectrum are now manifesting themselves in the debate on the economic stimulus package as a fight between stimulus through government spending versus stimulus through tax cuts. Monetarists generally don't like government spending. They saw too much of it in the 60s and 70s, and that experience taught them not to trust that the government will spend efficiently. Also, deficit spending adds to the total government debt, which makes government spending even more inefficient as a larger and larger percentage of tax revenues need to be used to service that debt. Granted, right now, we're paying nearly 0% interest to borrow this stimulus money, but that's a short-term, three-month interest rate, and we'll be rolling that debt over indefinitely until it's paid off at whatever the interest rates are in the future. And if government spending gets out of control and leads to inflation, we'll be in a catch-22. The only solution for inflation, that's raising interest rates, would also involve shooting ourselves in the foot with massive debt payments. So the preferred monetarist solution is typically tax cuts now, followed by a balanced budget and paying down the national debt as soon as the crisis passes. Neo-Keynesians see it a little differently, and their logic is based on something called a multiplier. A multiplier is a concept that's tied to that idea of money velocity or how quickly a dollar changes hands. You see, the impact of a dollar on GDP isn't just one dollar. It's that multiplied by the number of times that dollar changes hands. So when people put money in a bank account during a credit crisis, that money doesn't do anything. The bank sits on it because the bank is afraid it has too much debt and not enough dependable liquid assets like cash. In other words, that money has zero velocity. But even in normal times, most Neo-Keynesians believe that money put in a bank still has pretty low velocity, since while the bank will use the money, it won't actually spend it. That bank owes you the money back. They'll invest your money for you, but the bank will only make a small fraction of the total dollar amount invested in a year, and that fraction is all that goes to the GDP numbers. However, if you gave someone that money in the form of a paycheck, most of that money will be spent and start multiplying in the economy. So if your goal is to quickly fight a decline in GDP, in other words, you don't want people to put it in the bank, you want them to spend the money. Once they spend it, the dollar is easily multiplied by money velocity, and since people tend to save tax rebates and spend paychecks, this argument goes. 
the most effective stimulus would be for government money to put people directly to work. Now, is that really true? Do people really save their tax rebates in a deep financial crisis, or do they spend them like a paycheck? Hopefully we're about to find out. The stimulus package features a pretty hefty combination of simultaneous spending increases and tax cuts. Usually it's just one or the other. And so now, after hundreds of years of economic history, maybe we finally have something close to a controlled experiment in economics, where we can measure the effectiveness of government spending and tax cuts side by side, under the same economic conditions, and at the same time. The results of that experiment could result in a winner being declared in the War of Economic Ideas. A winner at least, until the next economic crisis comes along. Dialectica has been brought to you by the students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. Sources for our show can be found on our website, which can be accessed through kbrx.org. Any opinions offered on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the LBJ School of Public Affairs, the University of Texas, or KBRX Student Radio. Thank you to our producers and our guests, and remember, you are listening to KBRX Austin.